Super glad to have him on the show. Welcome, Stu. Uh, thanks. Great to be here, Craig. Um, yeah, so, of course, people who have been listening to the podcast know that I always start off with one question. It's always the same, which is, we're going to play some intro music, and you pick it. So, what do you want? So, I am an acapella cover nerd, so we will start with uh, Fireflies, the Al City song, as covered by uh, my alma mater, the Duke Pitchforks. Awesome. I think that is a first, Al- acapella music on the podcast, but... Yeah, that's great. Um, cool. So people have been hearing that on the way in. Um, so of course, um, you know you're you're well known for a lot of things. I mentioned one of them, which is um, founding relevance, which for which I'm very grateful, um, giving me a job. But um, a couple other things too. Of course, you're the author of um, you know the first closure book, right? Programming closure, um, and very prominent in the closure space. But the thing I thought that we would talk about most this time, we can dive into whatever, but. The thing I thought that um, our listeners might be maybe most interested to hear about right now at this point in history um, is Datomic. And of course, you've had a huge hand in Datomic, and we'll get into exactly how huge in a minute here. But um, I, so, you know, it's just, this brand, I, I'm not even going to try to summarize. I don't let you do that. So maybe you can start off by just talking to us about uh, what Datomic is. I mean, I'm actually kind of a a Datomic noob. I haven't really played with it much. I've had the opportunity to, to talk to you a little bit about it, but but give us the lowdown. Like, what is this thing, and why would we want to use it, and all that good stuff. So I'm going to start with a problem and an area that that people in the closure community will be familiar with. Uh, you know, Rich Hickey gave a talk last year called "Simple Made Easy," and uh, the argument that he made there, and that that we have made in a variety of places, is that uh, that simplicity is uh, fundamental. And that it's an, ob- an objective term, unlike ease, which is relative to skill set, for example. Uh, and that it really has to do with not complexing things, not delivering uh, multiple capabilities uh, intertwined together. Um, anybody who thinks about it for a moment, if you've built software, you find yourself in a situation where I built this and uh, my software has property A, but it also has property B mixed into it incidentally. Um, people, uh, my friend Neil Ford talks about uh, incidental complexity. Now, you have this incidental complexity uh, uh, in your software, and you always end up being sorry, right? And it's usually sooner rather than later. Like all of a sudden, there's this thing where you need A, but you need A without B, uh, and you can't get it, or you need to independently vary those capabilities. And it turns out that databases are quite complex beasts, and in particular, uh, Datomic, which is a database, uh, takes three notions and separates them and delivers them a separate capability. So storage, right? Just the raw, I can put something somewhere durably and get it back. Um, update, uh, and I'm going to say transactions for that because we're always transactional. But, but hypothetically, if we're talking at a general level, we could be just talking about update. Uh, and then query capability. And when you separate those three things, 
uh, a ton of goodness uh, immediately follows. Because now all of a sudden, I mean, one, one thing that's not so uh, immediately awesome is simplistic questions become difficult uh, or, or they can't have a single answer, right? So how scalable is it? Well, it's mm. not one thing anymore, right? There are these three things and now you have three knobs where you can say, I want to have this kind of characteristics about how I update and these sorts of characteristics about how I read and write data and these sorts of characteristics uh, about how I do query. Uh, and that single idea is just something that, that you chew on it for a while and you relate it to other aspects and other capabilities of the system. And it keeps coming back uh, and giving you uh, more and more benefit as time goes on. One huge benefit that's immediately obvious is that uh, query, uh, because it no longer happens in the updating place, uh, can happen in your own application processes, which means that um, all of the worries uh, that lead to object relational mapping and those kinds of things kind of go away because you have a logic programming language available in your process. You have the data available to you in your process, and you can go to town. So that one's really, I mean, that one's clearly very, very different, right? Like that's, and that's something that I know that as I've been thinking a little bit about Datomic, um, like I don't feel like I've really internalized that yet. I mean, what's the, you talked about the lack of ORMs and I'm not a fan of ORMs personally and other people are not as well. Some people are, but like, what's the, try to help me kind of grok that. What does it really mean to have the data in your process and why is that such a big deal versus, you know, I go off and I send a SQL query and I get the data back. Well, the data is in my process now. Like, what does it mean for you to say that it's it's over here now? So, uh, SQL queries. Uh, first off, I mean, there's a reason that relational databases dominate even today, and that is that they have the power of logic programming, which is you know on the little power curve ahead of functional programming, which is ahead of lowly imperative programming that we build our applications out of uh, most of the time. They have this amazingly powerful thing that leads to uh, business logic and business rules that are portable. Um, and of course, if you ever tried to port something from one SQL to another, you'd laugh at me. But I assure you, that's more portable than imperative code uh, could ever be, right? Uh, even even if you're wildly divergent from SQL standards, if you're staying in the world of uh, logical statements about your data, uh, that is more portable than you're going to be with uh, imperative capability. So there's a reason uh, that you want to do uh, those capabilities. But in the SQL world, you have to get everything in one shot, right? You want to ask a question about the world, you have to formulate a complete question. And that question uh, is complected in a lot of ways. It's complected in the sense of I got to find the entities I care about, right? I got to go ask the database for these guys. But I'm probably going to do some kind of report with those guys, which means I have to ask about the attributes of those entities. And I've got to combine all of that into one query. I can't sort of at my own pace sort of ask part of the question and then ask the rest of the question because by the time I go back to ask the rest of the question, maybe the world has changed. Well, yeah, right. Right. You don't have a sound basis. Uh, for doing that kind of work. So, so, uh, and this is why, I think this is at the end of the day, why developers don't like working in SQL. I mean, it's incredibly powerful, but then you have to do this really arcane, pump everything through one tube and get it all done in one shot. And in reality, it doesn't work, right? The minute that you have to do any one small detail that you can't do over there, you're kind of screwed, right? One, yeah. you know, so, so people build these applications where it's like, I issue a query and then I do some local processing with the results of my query and then I want to issue another query, and then I want to tally all of that up into uh, a useful result. And of course, scarily, a lot of people just write applications like that, blissfully unaware that they don't even have a sound basis uh, for the data that they're getting back. Right? I've issued two queries against the database, and right, you know, I'm I'm toast. So so that's a big piece. And then the other piece is just not having to worry about it. 
right? I mean, the data is ambient. You ask your questions of the data, which is how perception feels in the real world, right? I look around at things. I have memories of things that I've seen. I cogitate on those memories, and then at some point, I choose to take action. Yeah, that, that's something that um, I've heard you and Rich both talk about quite a bit is this whole idea of perception. And I don't want to go too meta. Like, I don't want to dive down too much. I want to talk about datomic, but that one's so important. Maybe you could spend a few minutes talking about this whole idea of perception and why it's important to think about programming with that model in mind. So uh, another way to come at it is to talk about uh, Datomic's time model. And so people look at a time-aware database, and of course it's an easy flashy feature to say, look, it's a database that you can magically say, you know, tell me what was going on two weeks ago, or tell me what was going on in this range of time, or let me react in real time uh, with a query to all these different pieces. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that the time capability, separate from any need, let's imagine that you didn't have, you were blissfully ignorant of any kind of time thing. You had only uh, only historical data, or you know, you'd poured a bunch of data in, and you were only issuing query. Uh, the fact of uh, time in the system, uh, if you don't have that, then you have places, right? And you simulate the passage of time with places that change in place, and so. Um, you know, your address is in a database somewhere. And if I want to know what your address is, I have to go to the place that knows your address, which in a database that combines all these things means that there's a row or a document somewhere that says, you know, Craig's address is this. And if I want to know, if I want to think about that, I can't. Right? I can't ponder that or take action on it later without going back to the place and saying, did it change? Because maybe it changed uh, while there. And, and once you say all the facts in your system are time-stamped, you're out of this game entirely. Now you can say, okay, I have in my database the fact that Craig is in Durham, North Carolina on April 11th. Now I know that, that fact. That fact cannot be uh, changed by future facts, right? You are here right now. You will go somewhere else in the future, but the fact remains that you are here right now. And so once things are time-stamped, I mean, yes, it's great to be able to you know, ask uh, and make all these time queries, but you actually have to be time aware to not be stuck in the world of places. And once you're time aware, that's what enables perception. Right? I can think about the fact that I knew you, that we met you know, many, many years ago, right. because that's not going to change. Yeah. Right? That fact isn't going to change. It's not going to sneak out from under me like, oh, crap, I didn't meet Craig 10 years ago. <laughs> Oops. Right? That, that's not going to go away. So perception, uh, perception is always historical. And our, our own perceptions are... And not, you know, exactly with an atomic clock, but they're time-stamped in some sense, right? I know I met you as an adult. Right. My, my, my own personal time-stamp is really very <laughs> general and not particularly accurate. So, you know, did I meet you in 1999 or 2001? Yeah, you know. But, uh, but I know that I met you as an adult, and I know that I met you before this. I met Rich. I know that I met you after I met Justin. You know, those kinds of things. And so the way we work, the way we perceive the world, uh, has this time-stamping in it. And it's what allows us to say, I can think about Craig without going and looking at Craig. Right? I'm actually able to think about you when you're not present. I don't have to go to the Craig place to think about Craig. So that's, that, that's really interesting and a, and a little subtle. Like It's one of those things where I hear it and it makes sense, but I feel like it needs to sink in. The one thing it does remind me of a bit is when I was first go, coming to Git, right, the source control system, uh, and I realized, I was like, well, wait a minute, this is kind of weird that everybody's got their own version. And I, at some point I realized that... Um, if you look at a traditional um, source control system, traditional would be something like Subversion or 
you know, in my case, way before that would be source safe, right? Heaven for Fen, but that's what it was. Um, and the thing that kind of finally started convincing me that Git was a reasonable model was realizing that that every time I checked the code out, that was a branch, right? Like you were really, you were like, so like that, that kind of really argues for the Git model, which I think is in some ways similar, which is, you know, an immutable history, right? Like this, this well, I mean, it's maybe the wrong way to look at it, but like this idea that there's a, a chain of events through history and they each kind of have a time, you know, that, that even systems that don't have that inherently sort of have it because, as you say, you look at it. And, and the event of looking at it is in itself kind of a, a, a moment in time. So it's kind of present even in systems that don't explicitly model it. I mean, I'm sure I'm not capturing the idea properly, but that was kind of came to my mind. Well, I think that the Git metaphor is a particularly useful one, um, not least of which because people like Git. So, of course, Atomic <laughs> is like Git. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but uh, Rich and I have both been resistant to uh, making the Git analogy or accepting it uh, as a blank thing uh, because uh, it's imprecise and it's incomplete and there's you know, uh, multiple layers to it. Um, it's, it's something that I, I'm starting to think of as the, the Twitter analysis problem, right? You take something that you're learning about and you say, oh, that's like something that I know, except it differs in this one way, and now you're at the 140 character limit, so you have to stop your analysis, <laughs> right? So you can't, can't right. say anything more. So if you, if you go back to, you know, I said that Datomic separates storage, update, and query. And, and instead of trying to fit it into a tweet, you'd like compare that to Git and break it out. What you come up with is, you know what, Git uh, separates update and query as well. Right? You can ask all kinds of questions about your Git repository locally. You don't have to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's where the metaphor is really strong. Right? And if you appreciate the power of Git separating query from update, you're ready to appreciate that mm-hmm. power uh, in your applications and your database. Now, Git doesn't separate storage. And the reason that Git doesn't separate storage is nobody has source code repositories that are you know, more than a trivial fraction of their own hard disk. And so uh, people have generally not hit the problem of uh, it's an absurd deal to just have all of my repository on my system. Now, um, if you misused Git to try to build some sort of system like uh, something you might try to do in Datomic where you have something that's much bigger than could fit on a disk or a memory, you might start wishing, oh, you know, I really would like to be able to separate um, storage. The other thing that's different is that uh, Datomic does ACID transactions and there's a single place where update happens. Um, That's not required by the separation of storage, update, and query. That's a choice we made, right? Having having split database into these three capabilities, that's a choice that we made because we see a ton of people who are suffering, right? People who want to have... They're not disappointed with ACID transactions in relational databases, Right? They're, they're frustrated with not being able to get some of the elastic capabilities they see their friends getting with NoSQL databases. Uh, they're frustrated with the flexi- inflexibility in their data model. And so they want to get to those kinds of capabilities. Um, and so, uh, but they don't want to lose asset transactions. And if you have the separation, you don't have to. Right? You can have uh, many of the positive characteristics people associate with various NoSQLs. Uh, and still have acid transactions uh, as a direct result of having made the separation. Hmm. That's interesting. That reminds me a bit of we just we just had Fogus Michael Fogus on the podcast, and he talked a little bit about Hymera, his um, compiler service, where you know he and he has an associated blog post that does a better job of going into detail than we got to on the podcast. But he talked about exploding the various things that are happening during compilation and moving the eval piece separate from the read piece, separate from the and uh, all the advantages of that. So you guys have done something similar where you've kind of broken it apart. 
um, with this kind of this comes like almost like a specialty of riches, really. It seems like. Yes, and and uh, you know we really talk like that. I mean, <laughs> words words like complex. I mean, we're we're on our design meetings, and and we spend hours uh, in meetings saying, can we break this apart into, you know, two smaller pieces or three smaller pieces, and what leverage uh, are we going to get from having done that? I'd like to come back to that in a minute. I, so you started talking about how you work. That's something I also want to talk about. Um, but you know, you mentioned the team, and that actually brings to mind. One of the questions I want to ask early on here, which is, so I'm I don't I don't actually know. I've never asked you this question before, but you know, at some point, you know, Rich came to you or you came here. I don't know how it happened. You, and somebody said, "Let's build a database," right? And like, what was that conversation like? Because I mean, you talk to you know you, you you know we have conversations in software all the time. We talk to clients or, or customers or each other or whatever, and we say, "Well, there's some things you should never do," right? And one of them is build a database. But you guys obviously went and built one and. How did you come to that? Like, how did that start seeming like a good idea or something that would be a, a, a good thing to do? So there's a couple of different strands uh, that I would bring together there. Uh, Rich and I met uh, as a result of me starting working on the book, Programming Closure. Um, it must have been at the JVM Language Summit, I want to say in 2008. Uh, and uh, when we met, uh, that was that, you know, the, con- the shared context was closure. And, and we hit it off uh, very well. And we ended up um, working with the Pragmatic Studio uh, to deliver closure training, and he wrote the forward for the book, and, and we got to know each other. And we were very interested in um, having the closure language be sustainable from a business use perspective, and having enough uh, business adoption of it that we knew that you know relevance could use it, and that other people who wanted to use it could get there. And so we had this agenda of having a meeting to discuss how we're going to make that happen. And so Rich came down to Durham. It was about six offices ago for relevance people. <laughs> right. And uh, uh, we had a multi-day meeting, and we talked about you know a bunch of different things. Uh, and then, kind of at the last half of the last day, uh, you know, Rich looked at me and said, "Okay, I think we have you know this is good. We can do this." Um, but we got to know each other. I want to propose a plan B instead. And so he laid out in about half an hour um, the the key architectural. Uh, ideas behind Datomic, and I looked at him and said, "Okay, we'll do that instead." I mean, it was it, there was no there was no question. Well, what about the what about that you like reached out and grabbed? Because I don't know that I would. I mean, you know, Rich has got a huge brain, and you know, I don't. But I don't know that even if he explained it to me, that this idea would like jump out at me and go, "Wow, that's totally something that needs to be done." I mean, it's it's awesome now that I see it in its finished form. I'm really impressed. But but you know, just like the concept, kind of. How did that speak to you as something that needed to be built? So I think that I mean the reason that I wrote the book, Programming Closure, was that I had taken it upon myself to be the technology scout for relevance and sort of figure out. I mean, we had switched to Ruby and Ruby on Rails primarily in mid two thousand and five. Uh, Justin had led uh, that charge, and uh, I felt like that throughout my career I had had pretty good taste in where technologies were going to go, but I was typically somewhat late to the party. And so my interest in closure grew out of a concrete desire to specifically scout things out uh, and pick something and get in there early. Um, and probably the thing, I, one of the things I'm proudest of in my career so far is if you look at the publication dates of all the different closure books, I really did get there way, yeah. way early. And, and the time model, I mean, people said, you know, when they looked at software transactional memory and closure and the model of perception and state and closure, 
people said, you know, where's the durability? This is awesome, and I'd like to have a database for it. So um, once you once I had had enough experience with Closure's model, realizing that that piece was in play uh, was probably sufficient. The other the other piece is the information model, which we haven't talked about yet. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're frustrated with databases, and we keep putting them in other models so that we can manipulate them. So we have um, SQL, which is hypothetically logic programming, and so this should be awesome. But the first thing we do with it, typically, is you know pour it into something else uh, that's, that's more conducive. And uh, the NoSQL movement has it right that the problem is not logic programming, it's the shape, right? It's the rectangles, mm-hmm. right? Data doesn't come uh, in rectangles. Rectangles is a, a property properly of a query, not a you know, query result. I might want a rectangle of results, but I don't want my data to be frozen in rectangles. And so it's worthwhile to ask the question, and, and Rich does this exercise, people. You know, what is the, what is the minimum unit of information? Um, on, on one end, you have things that bake in way too much. And so you get rectangles and document stores, which are the most baked in possible thing you can do, right? We're going to anticipate exactly what you're going to want to know and put it in this document. And then it's going to be perfect for that and not particularly good for anything else later. On the other end, you have key value stores. Uh, and key value stores are super important. Um, the storage layer of Datomic is uh, a key value model. You certainly want to have something like that. But as an information model, it's insufficient. Right? If I walk up to you and say, likes pizza, <laughs> right? you don't know enough. And as a result, when people go to build data architectures around a raw key value store, they end up having to put the information model in their application because the store is not rich enough. Um, the, the closest to it, uh, outside of Datomic in my view, is triple stores, which are pretty close, right? Subject, predicate, object, right? Craig likes pizza. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the, the key thing that, that Datomic would put on top of that is that you have to timestamp, right? You have to have this notion that there's not a place where this piece of information is kept. There's a timestamp on it, and uh, new information makes new space. So you have Craig likes pizza, and the database knew that as of five minutes ago. Mm-hmm. And then that's a fact, and we can cache that thing all over the place. You don't need memcached or anything like it. Um, your caches are the real information of your database, uh, and they're implicit so that you can query anywhere against information like that. And uh, that information model really gets you out of the business of, uh, of being locked into a shape that the first thing you do is pour yourself into objects or something to avoid. Uh, and really, really, in my mind, solves the biggest piece of what people described as the ORM impedance mismatch. Yeah, I, I like to observe that a lot of my career, which has um, been writing web services or was writing web services for a long time, was, was about pulling data out of rectangles uh, and then pouring it into graphs so that I could render it at high, render it as hierarchies, right? Database to objects to XML or HTML, and that is fundamentally a very weird thing to do. And so your observation about shapes and Alan uh, Dipert, who was also on the podcast recently, had a great con- uh, presentation at um, Closure West about the shape of data. It's just something that seems like it, it's really powerful to think about what shape your data is and to make that first class. I think it's very important. I think the other thing that falls out of it and falls out of sort of a separation of query and navigation. Um, if you have no time in your system, this is kind of a yak shave of a thread of thought, <laughs> but if you have no time in your system, 
then you have to program with places, which means you have to go somewhere else, which means you have to combine query and navigation because you have to do everything in one go to get the information back into your web server or whatever. Uh, if your web server is a datomic peer, then you can issue a query, which is going to run locally, that's going to return the IDs of the guys you care about. Then, with those IDs in hand, you actually have uh, lazy entity support on those guys. And so you can say, given this guy, you can start navigating, um, you know, graph database primitive style, right? Just, you know, follow this node, follow this node. And you can navigate around the entire reachable database from whatever data you pulled without having to issue another query, which I think is the other part. So as great as logic programming may be, uh, eventually people want to navigate around, right? They just want to say, given this, I want to go to that. I don't want to write a logic program necessarily for that piece. Um, that separation itself is only possible when you're able to run query locally or have query where the data is. You mean because of the performance constraints of the implied network round trips? Or? Ig uh, ignoring the performance constraints, just the semantic constraints of oh, I can't right. stop my database to say I'm going to issue this query and then I'm going to go back later and uh, ask something else. You could, you could if you're the only one using the database, right? Yes, if you want to scale, if you want to scale to one, yeah. Although it seems silly at that point to have the database not be with you. True, true. Right, good point. Okay, well that's that's awesome. Um, I I can't claim total enlightenment, but I feel like I'm I'm a notch closer, and I'm really looking forward to working with uh, with Datomic more. Um, so speaking of working with, here's a lame segue. Um, so you know. Um, Relevance. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the relationship between relevance and datomic, right? Because it's not, it's not maybe immediately obvious to people that come at it from the outside. I mean, is it a is it a relevance developed thing? I mean, Rich is involved. He's not a relevance employee. How does that how does that work? So I think that anybody who has even peripheral vision onto this uh, is aware that Rich is the leader of this effort. <laughs> and so, uh, from a business perspective, uh, uh, relevance participates. Uh, in the business metadata partners that uh, that is building Datomic, uh, Rich participates in that business. Uh, we have a uh, internal funding runway that gives us a long time horizon. Uh, one thing that's really different about working on this from, than working on the typical consulting project is uh, we know we're doing something interesting and challenging, and that it's going to take a while to do, and then it's going to take a while to show other people how to use it. And so it was important at the beginning to say we have a runway that's going to let us you know, build this, ship it, ship multiple rever uh, revisions of it, and, uh, and have people out in the world using it. How long, have you, how long have you been working on it? So I've been working on it for um, 17 or 18 months full-time, and then a significant amount of my time in the several months leading up to that uh, doing research uh, to get ready uh, to start with the actual you know, first phase of coding. Uh, the other thing I would mention there, and I, I'm astonished that as few people have picked up on this, but at, at, the, at his keynote at the first closure conj, um, Rich said it is extremely important to give yourself a long period of time to think about an interesting problem that you care about. And I've had the good fortune of being able to do that three times in my career. Yep. One of those is closure. Yep. Another one's datomic. Yep. Um, I know what the third one is. But I'm not going to say on this and, and podcast. And I don't know. And I have to say, uh, I, I noticed that comment. I mean, I've been very fortunate in that, you know, uh, I get to work with people like you and occasionally with Rich um, a little bit. And so when he said that, I was like, I was surprised too. I was like, I thought more people would kind of say, well, what are those three things? Now, now of course, you know, 
Uh, both of our listeners will be wondering what that is. So, That's right. Uh, now he'll be pestered. Yeah, exactly. One of my one of my side missions in in life is to pester Rich. So, good. That's so good. That's, you know, it's worthy. Mission accomplished. Very good. Yeah. Well, I, I should. By the way, I should give a shout out to Rich. Um, if this episode sounds any better than usual, it is entirely due to him. In addition to his many other talents, Rich um, uh, is a talented guitarist and was a, I'm going to say it wrong, recording engineer at one point. I think we went to right. school for it. So uh, he's helped me pick out microphones and do a bunch of other fancy stuff with the audio. So I super appreciate that as well. Um, and if the audio is terrible, you'll edit out the last well, two minutes if, of the conversation. I will say this. If the audio is terrible, it's entirely because I've implemented his suggestions incorrectly. So um, my fault that way. But yeah, you can always, can always edit it out. Hey, podcasts are great. Um, so, uh, so, so the like, like I was starting to say, um, you know, I did not work on Datomic, but of course, uh, many of my friends have. Um, and Tim spent some, Timmy Wald spent some time there, and, and other people at Relevance too. Um, and I know that you guys. So, there's a lot of interest in the way that Relevance works. I mean, we have a. Um, you know, we, we take great pride in the way that we do projects, and there's a whole section on our website how we work that we've referenced in probably close to every episode. Um, but you guys, you guys work in a way that's a little different from the way that we do projects typically at Relevance. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like what your what your day looks like when you're working on Datomic. So I'd say first that uh, we have all of the same elements that would normally show up in a Relevance process, and some others. And in just varying proportions, and in fact, there is no sort of single relevance project that way. Right, either, right? Course, these yeah. things, uh, these things vary. Um, we have, um, from an agile zealotry perspective, we have very tight feedback loops. Uh, we're connected all the time um, by IRC, Campfire, Skype, Makogo. Um, we've used every different technology you can think of for sharing screens and sharing audio and and doing that kind of thing. Um, we have. Um, <laughs> I jokingly call our morning meeting a stand-up. Mm-hmm. Um, I've spent um, uh, a couple of years early on at Relevance really teaching people how to run a stand-up and really saying, look, this is a stand-up. We have to stop. People have to go back to their other things they have to do. Well, the fact is we don't have anything else we have to do. Right? We're 100%, 150% dedicated to this. And so we jokingly call it the stand-up. It starts at 9. It usually ends at 11.30. <laughs> um, and I, I don't. I usually start lying down because that's easiest. <laughs> That's easiest for a blood flow to the brain perspective. Uh, but we do, um, uh, when you think about uh, pairing, which is certainly a big part of relevance culture, um, we pair at the keyboard some. Uh, we tend to pair more on the harder parts, which is design and design review. So there's a lot of time spent um, uh, looking at omnigraphal pictures of you know different things we're trying out. Uh, or... I mean, I would say the two tools we spend the most time in front of that way are OmniGraphle and Org Mode and Emacs, uh, not actually code. Uh, and the code writing part uh, is typically done more solo, um, but everything is reviewed by you know, more than one person and tests and all that, of course. Yeah. Um, so one of the I, I, I sent a shout out on Twitter to ask people to send in questions if they had any for you. And I got one interesting question from uh, Mike Nygaard. He said, make sure to ask you about simulation testing. And since you said the word testing, I thought it would be a good time to bring that up. Maybe, I don't know if you want to address that or not. but uh... Yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly a very interesting part of testing the system. The idea uh, behind simulation testing is that um, you want to execute your system as the system. Um, so, so one important thing is you know, actually run the system, actually run all the pieces of it. You don't always get to do that, and there, there are plenty of 
well-understood techniques for tying things off and mocking and stubbing and all that. But eventually you want to run the entire system. And you certainly, I've seen projects that have gotten a ton of mileage out of what we call smoke tests, right? So something that has a curated input or a curated walkthrough using the system and verifies that the system doesn't explode, catch fire or whatever before you get to the end. Um, a lot of systems that are very well tested at the unit and functional level don't have that smoke test because it's harder to write if you've written one before, right? It takes, it takes uh, a certain kind of thinking throughout the entire system about how to set up all those pieces. But once you've done it a few times, it becomes easier to do. Uh, simulation testing is, is a level beyond that where you simulate the outside users of the system, whatever they are, whether they're humans or other processes that you don't control. Uh, and you simulate them uh, with a database of time-stamped inputs. So you say, okay, I would like to simulate I'm building a web application that you know I anticipate that we're going to have a thousand users logged in doing these kinds of activities. And you generate time-stamped loads for the different activities. And those loads are in terms of actions kind of at the user level. So they could be um, issuing queries, they could be shopping and filling their shopping cart, you know, whatever. Um, and then you can run the system and um, already you have uh, a great set of outputs to look at without having to instrument your system specially. You have the state of its persistent stores before and after. Uh, you also have logs and metrics and any ancillary things that it produces. And if you try to focus on evaluating the health of your system from those things, it puts a lot of pressure on you to make those things better. And making those things better is actually useful for your users in production, uh, right? Having, having better metrics, having better logs ends up being a win uh, because it sticks around. It's not, it's not part of a test harness that you jettison as a second stage later in the game. So that's really interesting because what you just said uh, struck me as, I remember when I started, first started doing TDD, right? One of the big arguments is that, look, your system, your, your design will be better because you're actually using it right from the perspective of typically the perspective of somebody consuming an interface at a very low level. And what you're saying is that you're going to test your system like in a production mode. And as a result, your system will be better as a production system. You know what I mean? Like you're actually exercising logs and, you know, metrics and all the other stuff. That's, that's really, I could totally see that. Yeah. And although I would say that, that, I don't want to flip the importance. I think that that is a strong ancillary benefit. Sure. Right? The primary benefit is having um, something where you can apply statistical techniques to look at. I'm going to generate inputs of uh, different kinds of shapes and sizes rather than having these hand-curated things. Because once you're in that game, all of a sudden, you start to have the ability to get those kinds of surprising interactions between components of your system that you wouldn't see on a sort of hand-curated uh, testing path. When you guys do that, you're not looking for, I mean, you know, typically like, you know, we, we like functional programming because unit testing is really easy. You put the same input and you always get the same output, right? Uh, I assume that when you do simulation testing, you're not looking for, you know, exactly the same logs, exactly the same metrics, exactly everything the same. Like, how does that work? So there's definitely a lot of thought that goes into um, correctness comparisons. Uh, one of the libraries that I added to Clojure is Clojure Data Diff, which is um, a differ for data. And it's, it helps. It's not a small thing, but it's a kind of thing that's like, you know, I'm going to compare things that aren't exactly the same, but I want to get a summary of their differences and ask then, you know, are these differences, you know, problematic or are these differences acceptable? Probably a, a more important thing than that, though, is 
to say, when do you exercise those validations? Uh, we have a simulation test has a database of time-stamped inputs. We're testing mm. Datomic, which is a database which time-stamps everything. So um, I can actually say, I can devise a test I can, that I'm not smart enough to write the validation for. And then in 2016, when I figure out how to write the validation for it, I can write the validation then and then run screaming into them and go, oops. <laughs> right, yeah, or, or maybe even, yeah, right. I mean, a, a variation on that is, uh, you know, uh, have we always exhibited this behavior, right? Like a, like a user is reporting this, oh, I never thought of that. Um, should we see if that's something that was in there from the beginning or, you know, what happened? That's right. And, and so Datomic's nature itself facilitates this kind of testing because of its time awareness. And then that pervades the approach to testing. And the input database is also a Datomic database. The description mm-hmm. of, of the things that actors in the system are going to do is itself a Datomic database. When you guys, so when you guys do this testing, are you using some sort of existing framework or did you wind up writing your own thing or how did you pull it off technically? So there are aspects of simulation testing which could be frameworkized, uh, but they're fairly small, right? The, the, uh, the part that is uh, given a set of actors and a generic multi-method for load, you know, run the load on this many threads on this many boxes, um, that's really the smallest part of the work. Uh, the, the larger part of the work is devising the loads, which ends up being domain-specific, uh, and then writing the validators, and particularly the ones that are more fuzzy, right? There are going to be some that are like, yes, I want to verify that we made a bunch of orders in the hypothetical shopping cart and that they're really there, but some of them are going to be more fuzzy. You know, we ran a system for this long with this kind of load, so we expect statistically you know, this kind of thing to have happened uh, in the output database. Doing that kind of validation work... Um, ends up being domain-specific. So it's mm-hmm. not uh, something that we had certainly awareness of an off-the-shelf library that we could just grab to do. Gotcha. Will we see? Um, will, will we ever see any of that stuff kind of make its way out? I mean, it's not obviously a core piece of Datomic itself. So do, I mean, are there things like that where we can hope to, to reap the benefits of your experience? So there, I think over time there will be a lot of open-source Datomic dividends. Um, we want to do things that we can support uh, and that are baked. Uh, and so, I mean, we've already seen some. Test generative enclosure is something that was devised internally to help testing Datomic. Uh, data diff enclosure, likewise. Uh, closure script itself grew out of a... Oh, interesting. Uh, grew out of a Datomic design discussion. Um, you'll notice that there's nothing in Datomic about closure script right. and, and vice versa. Um, and we have a policy of not talking about things that aren't baked. So... Fair enough. There you go. All right, uh, but but yeah, there's and there's you know there are three or four um, capabilities within Datomic that uh, require some polish uh, to be you know ready to con- be consumed as open source. But we definitely uh, keep an eye on that. Certainly, open source is an important uh, you know part of what we do, uh, and closure itself being a huge you know supporting underpinning for this and. So, yeah, we, we definitely will continue to do that over time. Cool. Well, you reminded me of another question from another, uh, another uh, tweet person. What do you call it? Tweeple? I don't know. Um, uh, so one of the questions that came in on, um, on Twitter was, uh, will there be a self-hosted open source option? So um, part of that answer is uh, we will, between the time at, that we record this, and the podcast ships will have another release, and um, some of the uh, trappings that affect that 
will change. Uh, I do think it's important that uh, that people are clear about the benefits of open source and the benefits of free um, and when they want each of them. So we love Git, which is open source, and we love GitHub, which is free for a while. Uh, we love Ruby and Rails, which is open source. We love Heroku, which is free at a certain level. Um, uh, Datomic definitely embraces that uh, kind of notion of having a free tier. So uh, in Datomic, the current pricing model um, has uh, two permanently connected peers to the database is the free tier. So if you have a small application that has um, one web server connected to it, right, you're in the tiny phase of your startup, um, then you can run Datomic free in production mode forever uh, with that. And so that's, that's an important uh, part of the overall calculation. Cool. Okay. Wow. <laughs> so uh, um, let me see what else in my notes here. But uh, uh, so one thing I want to ask you about is the name. Like the name Datomic is um, is pretty cool when you think about it. But how did that kind of come about? So we kicked around uh, a lot of different names, and obviously you've you've done product stuff before. You go through the whole hell of discovering that your favorite words have been taken by uh, you know random squatters and everywhere on the internet, and you can't do it. Uh, but when we landed on Datomic, we we fell in love and. It really came out of the, the notion of the word datum to describe these atomic units of information like entity, attribute, value, transaction, or time. And uh, that is a real key. I mean, if you look at how different, relate, or different um, NoSQL alternatives uh, distinguish themselves, like data model is really important. We think it's really important. Uh, we think that uh, the datum is a particularly powerful model. And we really wanted to just use the Latin words datum, D-A-T-U-M, and mm. data, the plural, because those words have dictionary definitions that work. The problem is that they're so generic that, that they're completely poisoned. And so we played around with datum, D-A-T-U-M, and datums to get out of saying the word data because that was not going to convey any useful information. And we just knew people were going to be constantly calling us and telling us we didn't know how to pluralize <laughs> the word datum, which we do. So uh, one day, Rich, I think, said, you know, datum with an O, and we looked at it, and we're like, yes, this is it. Right? It's close enough that the association is strongly there, and, and we can pluralize it the way we want to, so it doesn't look like data. So we have datums, D-A-T-O-M-S, and I think it's really good. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, the, the, especially when you get the chance to hear you or Rich explain, you know, the you know, the whole, you know, is it a rectangle? Is that the fundamental unit? And, you know, the idea of atoms and, and data, I like that a lot. Um, dude, so, I mean, I got to ask you, like, what's next for you guys? I mean, maybe there's Rich's third idea, right? And I, I know I can't ask about that, nor do I even have any inkling what it would be. But um, are you going to, like, write an operating system? Or, I mean, what's, the, like, what's, what's on your horizon? I, I just, one of the things I wanted to ask you specifically about in that context was, are you looking forward to yourself being able to write applications that leverage this? I mean, was the joy for you in creating the product or is it in creating a solution? I mean, you come out of a consulting background like me, so, you know, presumably you have a real yearn to solve, like, problems in the world that, that are as separate from, let me make a tool, which it, arguably Datomic is. So you've sort of answered the question. Okay. I think that, that uh, for me, and I think for Rich as well, uh, you know, each step up is building power to do the next thing. And so uh, we certainly have a lot of uh, product and service ideas are, that are things that we think 
you could do with Datomic that would be difficult to do with uh, existing database technologies. And yes, my biggest complaint uh, is that I'm stuck being a Datomic developer and not a Datomic user more often. Yeah. I do get to use Datomic, but I don't get to uh, I don't get to use it uh, you know full time. I'm constantly going back and, and tweaking it. Well, I suspect that there there's not much sympathy out there for you, Stu, uh, because you work daily with Rich Hickey uh, in Closure, and uh, I think there's uh, more than a few people that would. Uh, pay a lot to trade places with you for a few days. I wear body armor. They're very good, very good, yeah. That's that's more to protect you from your employees than really from <laughs> anything else, right? Um, so, I, I mean, I, I'm practically overwhelmed at this point, but I, I do want to ask you a few more questions, um, in, including one that our listeners know is coming. Um, but before I get to that one, um, so one thing I wonder is, since I haven't really uh, dived in yet to really learn Datomic or to apply it to, to real problems yet, Although I have a problem in mind that I that I think is perfect for it, um, I guess what I would wonder is for for a guy like me, like what's going to be hard? Like what is going to be the thing that as I come to Datomic is going to be? For example, with Closure, you know, I came to it, I had done some Lisp. I thought, well, I'm coming from an object oriented background. It'll be the Lisp that's hard, and it turned out it was the functional part that was hard. So what what about Datomic is going to be the challenge for me? Do you think? So I think as you know, you say the functional part was was hard. And, and the difficulty there is not that functional programming is somehow problematic in and of itself, uh, but it's a different way of looking at things. And in particular, I think that when people are learning Clojure, they go through this experience of there are a lot of different things that in Clojure that have their own uh, features in isolation, but it's the combination of them that's really powerful. And you don't see that from any one until you see how they fit together, and that's something that just comes over time. And Datomic is very much like that. And it has these interleavings of different things. And so you look at the time model and you're like, oh, I get it. I'd like to be able to ask about what happened two weeks ago. Well, but actually the time model, you could argue, is about I'd like to be able to separate transactional updates from query, which requires that you uh, model time correctly. So you keep finding these feedback loops between different parts of the design, which is not an accident because that's how the design process works. right? You have all these different goals uh, different things that you want to achieve, different problems that you want to solve, and you pit them against each other, and you know things slide around into a new configuration. Uh, the second thing I think that that people and we've already seen people struggle with this in the you know few months that Datomic has been out is that Datomic is really architected for the cloud. It really is designed to say, you know, these things are broken out into separate pieces. They're serviceable, serviceable, if you will. And uh, so pre-cloud thinking uh, makes it really difficult to appreciate in some cases. Uh, people come in and ask a question like, you know, what are the scalability properties? Well, again, you can't just ask that question in one place now. You have three different uh, knobs that you get to turn. One particular place where people are struggling is there's this presumption that you want to bring query and analysis to the data. Right? That's, that's kind of a truism for people, it's like, oh, your data is big and expensive and it lives somewhere and you want to bring uh, query and analysis to it. And Datomic must be crazy because it has all these peers and the data is going to go to those peers. And you know, how can that possibly work and be uh, efficient and performant uh, compared to the old way? And uh, the fact of the matter is that with a beautiful service like Amazon's DynamoDB, you can actually deliver bytes, kilobytes, megabytes, of information um, to multiple peers 
from this backbone of SSDs on the fast network pipe uh, in a way that you can't match with single drives and single machines somewhere. And not only can you get that performance, but you get other benefits as well, right? Now you have um, elastic storage and elastic query where in the old model of taking the work to the data, which you did because you had to for performance, uh, you don't have that elasticity and you have to organize your data and then send the work to it. And if you want to do different work, you have to organize the data differently. Uh, with Datomic, that falls out uh, with the caching. Uh, but it's going to take people a while to go and read the latest academic papers that are coming out about performance or to go and um, look at the hardware capabilities and go, yeah, I don't want to spin my own disk. That's, that's foolish five years ago thinking uh, if I really want to be on the leading edge in performance and capability. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. You said a couple things there. Um, one that struck me was, uh, and I, I didn't, I wasn't there when it was said, so I don't know if it was you or if it was Rich, but someone was talking about, they had come to your session at Closure West where you guys were talking about datomic and depth, and uh, someone said, yeah, I walked out, and, and the question that really struck me was, um, what's faster, like reading data off of a spinning hard drive locally or reading off of an SSD through a really fast network connection? And, uh, yeah, I mean, what an interesting question, right? Well, and I would certainly encourage people to do their own research, right? Don't accept what I say. Right. Do your own research and don't just look at the numbers now. Look at where the trends are uh, and look at your own data sets and, and what kind of work you have to do. Um, but uh, it's unwise to presume that the way it used to work is going to be the way that it continues For to sure. work. For sure, yeah. Well, so um, i got to ask you one more here because this one amused me no end. Um <laughs> So I, I laughed out loud when I got this tweet from uh, PLT Hulk, right? And I'm, I'm not going to be able to do the voice, but I'll do my best. Uh, so the, the question is for you, Stu, is what programming language make him want to dropkick a gorilla in a bad way? Ooh, programming language that makes me want to dropkick a gorilla in a bad way. So in general, and you know this about me, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Mm -hmm. And so I don't look back at... at things that I have done in the past and I'm no longer interested in doing um, with hatred or spite. Um, there, I've used a lot of different programming languages um, and I think that really I don't, I don't think I have uh, a programming language that, um, that just makes me want to uh, be furious. I, I think there's an there's a API design thing um, that makes me crazy, um, which is related to uh, Datomic and, and building things for the cloud to some degree. And that is uh, things that are not designed uh, to be item potent when they could be. Mm. Right. So operations, I've been working today against an API that you want to do A, B, and C. And you walk up to the API and you say, could you please do A, B, and C for me? And it comes back and says, error, A was already done. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, so now I have to recompose it. So now I have to issue a query against that to say, okay, was A done already? And I get back this, this data structure that I'm going to look at and say, is this guy A? Well, the data structure that they store and the data structure that you put in aren't the same. Mm. And in fact, the data structure that they store is illegal for input. I know, huh. it sounds crazy. Okay. So, but yes, this made me want to drop kick a gorilla in a bad <laughs> way. It's like, I, I concoct a perfectly good A and I say, do you have that already? And it says, no, I don't. And then I try to put it in and says, I've got that. And I'm like, oh, I'll take the thing you have and ask about it. Oh, you're not allowed to ask about that. That's a, you're not allowed to use that API. 
So uh, item potency is a wonderful thing. Okay. All right. Well, we won't ask you to name any names. Uh, well, uh, Stu, uh, again, like I think we could talk about this for a long time. I mean, it's always interesting to talk to you, and I actually hope that you'll come back on the podcast again because um, as fascinating it is to talk about Datomic, I think there are – I've known you for, I don't know, 12 years or something now, and I know that there are other stuff that we could talk about that would be equally interesting. Um, and uh, at some point, we'll, um, maybe we'll get a chance to talk about Rich's third thing. Who knows? But um, in the meantime, I'm sure we can find lots of other things. Um, so I uh, want to thank you a ton for coming on. Like As always, it's always great to hear you talk uh, about anything. This was really cool. I feel I feel like um, I'm really starting to understand Datomic, although, of course, I need to go use it, which I'm really looking forward to. But um, before we go, I have the one more question that you know I have to ask you, which is uh, what's our closing song here? Well, I will tell you, and I will also uh, make a little bit of pitch for how to be successful in life. Okay, great. Um, uh, this is what I've done. Uh, I've spent my entire life joining selective organizations that became a lot more selective after I got in. <laughs> uh, so it has this effect of, of making it look like I'm incredibly awesome because I've done all these things back when they were easy to do. Um, but I was uh, in the Duke Pitchforks back when that was not as... Uh, cool a thing as it is now and we are ending with another one of their covers this is um, a cover of uh, Hysteria by Muse and that's that alright awesome well thank you again so much for coming on the podcast for talking to us about Datomic about um, simulation testing which I thought was really interesting about all the other things you told us um, again hope you'll come back real soon and uh, just thanks a ton um, also uh, thanks as always to our listeners uh, I know I joke about only having two but I know that they're Quite a few people listen. I've gotten some great comments from people, so thanks to them as well. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. We'll, we'll say goodbye on that note. All right, thanks again, everybody. Thanks, Craig. All right, bye. <laughs>